This is Vital Signs, a podcast on cutting-edge trends in health tech and the people shaping them. Today, we've got a really interesting guest in Dr. Jeff Kahn. Jeff started his career as a geriatrician and then ran the Urban Medical Group, which was dubbed a home run uh, in health affairs for the outcomes they drove in high-need, at-risk, complex patients. Jeff's had a series of, of really fascinating roles since then. He was the chief medical officer at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, then the chief medical officer over at Cigna. He ran the healthcare strategy as an SVP over at Walgreens, was the president at ChenMed, one of the most successful risk-based primary care organizations, and now is the CEO and founder of Welby, a geriatric group that takes care of frail, complex elderly patients in their homes. So Jeff, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jake, for having me. So you definitely have like, one of the most impressive set of organizations you've, you've worked with, I think, for anyone we've had on the podcast. And so I have to ask before we dive in specifically, I mean, I'd love to hear a bit more just about your career journey and kind of what motivated you at, at different inflection points to join each of these organizations. Yeah. So the way I'd like to think about this is my entire career for for 40 some odd years has been more about that va- has been about value based care. You know, that's what's called right now. I just like to think about it as doing the right thing for the patients both in terms of improving outcomes, lowering costs. But I, I've been really focused on that. And when I started at Urban Medical, we were doing these home visits for these complex people because that was just simply the right thing to do as a provider. And in fact, we were actually losing money for doing, at doing that, but it was just the right thing to do for the patient. Then to go on to my arc, I began to realize that the only way to get providers to do the right thing is you have to change how we pay providers. So that launched me on my career to go to CMS and then subsequently to Cigna. So altogether, let's say on the payer side, uh, 15 years on the payer side. And you had to change how payers paid and you had to move them to this value-based world. But once you got the payers to move to that to the value-based world, you know, Cigna, CMS, all the health plans are all now moving that way. The value, though, is added by the providers because they're responsible for 85% of the dollar, right? So then what I basically, once the payers started moving that direction, I wanted to switch back to the providers. That got me to Walgreens. Walgreens, I was responsible for 800 clinics, and I was trying to move those into value-based care. And ChenMed, you know, ChenMed currently has over 100,000 members in Medicare Advantage Risk-Full Risk Arrangements, and then finally to Wellbe. So just think about it as an arc. You start off on the provider side, then had to kind of change the payment policy terms. But now you go back to the provider side because that's really where, that's 85% of the dollar and that's really where things are going to happen, where things are going to change. I'm impressed. You're, you're, you're taking care of complex chronic care patients before it was cool. Now it's, now it's like the cool thing to do. I, I'm curious, as someone who has who's been pretty early to the shift to value, especially on the complex chronic side, when you go to somewhere like Cigna, what is the appetite there to actually shift, right? Like from from Cigna's perspective, this is what, like uh, pre-ACA, pre-all of this, like you get there, you show up, you're like, hey, I want to change the entire payment system. I'm sure people aren't, you know, rolling up the red carpet for that internally, right? Yeah. So that's a really good question. I'll, um, and I'm going to have to generalize this because this is true of all commercial payers. Cigna at that time had 95, 99% of its book in commercial payers. So I'm going to just say for all commercial payers, what I discovered was most of commercial payers are in this ASO model, or administrative services only. 
where really they're being hired by the plan, uh, by the employers to uh, negotiate contracts and then pay bills. But to the extent that there are any savings that you create from managing high complex patients, and uh, all those savings go back to the employer. So it turns out the ASO commercial insurers don't have a lot of incentives to deliver value-based care in this complex patient population in the ASO commercial book. That's actually why when you look at how we sit today, most of the innovation in this space is occurring either in Medicare Advantage or Medicaid plans. There's a fundamental disconnect between what's going on in the commercial payer space is that because they're really administrative services only. Yeah, I think it's like when you now, especially with a lot of the price transparency rules that have come out, a lot of the employers are really seeing how these ASO plans are really, you know, they're pass-throughs, right? They're not really trying to do a lot in terms of care management. They're not doing it. They don't have a huge incentive to, to lower any of the cost or the prices, et cetera. So not surprising. You got it. And that, it took me a while to figure that out, but I figured it out. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that's, that's fascinating about your career is you've obviously been doing these value-based models for, you know, 35, 40 years, right? And I think even with Urban Medical Group from 1984 to 1994, you know, you were successfully taking on risk for some of these complex patients. You know, you were on the leadership team at CMS during the 90s. You know, it's funny, you know, Nikhil and I, when we talked uh, to some of the folks that have been in the industry a bit longer about some of our favorite kind of companies uh, that are that are new in, in, in taking on risk, they say, ah, we've seen this before. This is the same thing that was tried in the 90s. Uh, you know, this is, this is just, uh, you know, this is just round two. And so I'm curious, like, as someone who built businesses and worked on these uh, issues early on, how you kind of think about the similarities and differences of what was done then versus now. They keep calling us naive. Please <laughs> tell us if we are. Educate us. <laughs> yeah. No, no, this, it's a really good question. I actually think from the provider perspective, there's really not that much difference when you get into the value. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's simply taking good care of the patient. I really think that what's different in the 80s or 90s versus today, especially in Medicare Advantage, there, there are three structural things that occurred in the program, largely all driven by CMS, that made things different. Number one is you had the advent of risk adjustment. Because what provider or what plan would deliberately want to take care of the high-risk patients if your payment was the same, right? I'll flip it around. Back in the 80s and 90s, what the plans were doing in the absence of risk adjustment is they were just skimming the healthy. That was the name of the game. You know, if I'm going to get paid the same, I just want to pick up the healthiest patients. Well, that doesn't fundamentally add value. So the one structural difference is risk adjustment, because now you can have plans deliberately try to take care of the sick patients and then providers underneath try to take care of it because you get adequate payment. The second structural thing is this whole STARS program, because if you recall back in the 80s or 90s, the public backlash against these capitated programs was, oh, you're just going to stint on care and you're just going to deny care. And but quality is going to suffer. So I think that this, this whole change, we now have a quality measurement system. It's not perfect, but we have a quality measurement system and we can demonstrate that either plans or providers are doing better and we're paying for that is a big structural difference. 
The third structural difference that occurred from CMS was actually the development of, quite frankly, ONC, which is back then, we didn't have good measures, good metrics, good data. Now, we have much better metrics, much better data, and, and so it's this whole kind of data interoperability, which has been a big change. So I think that there are three structural things that have enabled, let's call it what was going on in the 80s and 90s, to come back and now flourish now. Yeah. No, it's interesting. And, and you kind of hit on the first one there being risk adjustment, which I feel like, you know, is, is always kind of discussed and debated in policy circles. And, you know, actually, I think you actually published something recently that was quite interesting in health affairs, which was, you know, I guess people always say, look, there's a huge difference in documented burden of illness for people in Medicare Advantage and people in fee-for-service Medicare. And it's, it's probably due to the fact that there's, you know, relative difference in coding incentives in, in, in both of them. And, you know, so some people use that as a way to say, hey, we've got to get rid of this. And I think the point you made, if I'm paraphrasing correctly, was essentially, well, actually, it's very good for the system to accurately document these things. I mean, how else do we know how to triage in, uh, populations? How else, do, how else do we really understand risk within a population? And then maybe the issue, you kind of flipped it around. Instead of it being the Medicare Advantage plans that are the bad people for, for documenting these things, maybe actually fee-for-service Medicare needs much better incentives. I, I don't know if I, if I accurately got that, but I'd love to hear kind of your, you know, maybe just you elaborate on that, because I thought it was a really interesting and kind of counterintuitive point. <clears throat> it's actually more than counterintuitive. It's actually true. But, <laughs> that aside. Okay, but let me, I, I think the first thing you got to understand a lot about this debate around whether Medicare Advantage plans are being paid more than fee for service. The goal, the, the congressional intent was to actually have them paid the same for the same acuity patient paid the same. It's called actuarial equivalence. That's the goal. And then you have two competing systems. You have a Medicare Advantage system and you have Medicare fee-for-service. But if they're all paid the same for the same patient, let them compete. Okay. So if you start there, and then you ask your question, why are there coding differences? And it's simply because in Medicare Advantage, they're paid for on diagnostic coding. And in Medicare fee-for-service, they're not. That's simply in Medicare fee-for-service, you're paid on CPT coding your inputs in care, but you're not paid on correct diagnoses. Okay, so if you understand that, Medicare Advantage paid on diagnoses, Medicare fee-for-service is not. There are two approaches to that. One is you get rid of it in Medicare Advantage, which then blows up risk adjustment, or you introduce risk adjustment in the Medicare fee-for-service. And actually, from a policy standpoint, this argument's been had like 30 years ago. There were people in Medicare fee-for-service saying they need risk adjustment. There are hospitals saying, look, I do a hip surgery, but it doesn't make sense to pay the same amount for that hip surgery on a healthy person versus a sick person. You should risk adjust. So I think the the tenets of accurate risk adjustment is true in Medicare fee-for-service also. And if you actually had both programs with those same coding incentives, you would actually end up with actuarial equivalence between both programs. And so how do you actually incentivize then the Medicare fee-for-service side? It's it's all up to CMS, actually. How would you do it? CMS has to... I, oh, guess, ACO, I, I guess ACO reach is sort of like one step in that direction, right? ACO, ACO reach is definitely one step in that direction. There's no question about it. But how many people are participating in ACO reach? So um, what I argued for in that paper in the health affairs was you should put risk adjustment in an ACO reach. Let's call that at the population level. 
But then you should do it at the episode level. You should think about it for at the hospital DRG level. Or you can think about it for a home health episode. Same thing, risk adjustment. You know, it's, e- it's, it's easier to take care of someone in a home health visit who has no diseases, other than they just broke their hip, versus someone who had 12 diseases and broke their hip. So I think that it's introducing risk adjustment, not at the ACO, which says at the population level. I think it's introducing it at different levels within the system. Episode, the physician encounter level, same thing with the doctor. You know, a doctor actually will tell you, I love taking care. I only got 20 minutes to take care of a patient. I only, I love taking care of the healthy, recent retired golfer because they don't have any, you know, <laughs> versus, versus the patient who comes in with this laundry list of pills and diagnoses. And they, they're like freaking out and saying, how am I going to do that in 20 minutes? So you might be able to tie break a, a debate that Jacob and I have, which is somewhat related to, to risk adjustment also. Again, everything we've been talking about up to this point has been risk adjustment in Medicare. Jacob and I have had a debate recently about value-based care models in the commercial space. And one of the things is, you know, because there's no risk adjustment mechanism in commercial, can you even make models like that work? Similar with other problems like benchmarking, et cetera. And you've actually spent some time at uh, Walgreens and I know some other players and, and Cigna who are players who seem to be moving maybe more towards this direction. I'm curious, like, how you think about uh, value-based care in the commercial space, maybe relative to, like, the MA or Medicare or complex population space. So I've kind of talked about this, but I'll just summarize. Number one, you got to get around the structural issue of ASO versus fully insured. So I think if the commercial world went 100% to fully insured, then you got the plans now thinking completely different. And then in that fully insured, let's call it marketplace, I actually think if you do put in some form of risk adjustment, then I'll see, I think you'll see the same type of innovation that's occurring on the Medicare Advantage as you would in, in uh, you'd see the same in the commercial as you do in Medicare Advantage. I think- basically, just think about it. Yeah. Medicare Advantage is fully insured with risk adjustment. If you get there on the commercial world, I think you, you see the same kind of innovation going on. I guess the question becomes like, how much of like the cost can you actually shift in a commercial population also, right? Like you're, you're working with complex chronic patients and s- small changes or small like, you know, shifts can actually really meaningfully change the cost curve. I'm curious if that's even possible in the commercial segment in the same way, right? Maybe like 55 to 64 as they like kind of, you know, get closer to Medicare. But like, are there episodes that you think that, something like a value-based care arrangement for uh, commercial or fully insured would actually work? Yeah, so I think so. You know, like all providers and plans for that matter, even in Medicare Advantage, they think about stratifying the population to your point to focus on the 80% that are whatever, 70% of the cost. There's a similar parallel in the commercial population. It's just, and so I actually think you end up with these programs that, Let's say on average, you know, work for the healthy, like you and Jacob, you know, you don't need much, right? But then you end up finding, you end up focusing kind of within that and stratifying to the 20 or 30% that really could use it. And so I think that's basically you take the same approach. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I'm flattered that you said we looked healthy. <laughs> that, 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 that's, that's a medical diagnosis coming from a doctor. So. I know. <laughs> okay, code <laughs> Risk adjust me. Risk adjust. And I get to charge you yeah, for it. Exactly. <laughs> but I think it's interesting, you know, this, this point about the 80% healthy, 20% not as healthy. You know, I think that, that makes commercial really hard, right? I think your business, you know, you're picking, you know, you're focused on a subset that kind of is similar or, you know, even a Medicare Advantage all patients have some sort of condition, right? Even even a set of healthy ones. And I think what's been, you know, Nikhil and I see a lot of businesses where, oh, we're going after the 80%, but we couldn't touch the 20%. Or we're going after that 20%, but like we have nothing for the 80%. And, you know, we had Tom Leon from Galileo earlier. And I think he's one of the few people that's like, actually, I'm going to just build, but it almost feels like two different businesses. It's like, I'm going to build a business for those 80% and I'm going to build a business for the 20%. And they look completely different. And it's interesting to have those sit under one roof. I, I actually think from a provider perspective, I think you can. Um, so I do think like, uh, so ChenMed is all Medicare Advantage, but let's say you do look, look like at a, a Village MD, which is both commercial and Medicare Advantage. I actually think that they can, they can build a business, which, which, you know, for 80, 90%, let's say it's the routine customary stuff. And then they focus on the 10 or 20. And so I think from a provider perspective, yeah. you can do that. Well, actually, I mean, I think an interesting related point to this is kind of the direction, you know, your old employer Walgreens has gone where, you know, if I think about what those initial retail clinics were, you know, they probably were focused a lot on, you know, the 80%. And then, you know, obviously with the, you know, the kind of majority stake in Village MD, Village MD's acquisition of Summit, you know, it feels like there's this just increasing footprint of, of what these kind of organizations are doing. And I'm kind of curious as you think about, you know, 10, 20 years down the line, like, what role does a, a Walgreens, a CVS, Walmart kind of have in our in our broader healthcare ecosystem? It's interesting because I thought about this very strategy when I was at Walgreens also and was pushing in this direction. I do think the well, so first of all, I think you have to kind of figure out from a provider perspective where's your best leverage point. And I do think it's primary care. So you basically have the Walgreens and CVSs thinking about primary care in their stores, right? You're not having them open up cardiology clinics or whatever in their stores, right? So you got Walgreens Village MD. So I do think you're going to increasingly see those retailers, that's called, right? you might as well include Walmart, with thinking about primary care footprints in their stores, okay? But no disrespect to any of those organizations, they are not big enough, their footprints are big enough to meet the primary care needs for the entire country. And so I actually think there's a set of services from a Walgreens or CVS or Walmart perspective, which are, let's call it primary care enablement. And that's where I was pushing Walgreens when I was there, but primary care enablement. And I think you're going to see them get into that game also. You know, in many ways, if you look at the CVS Signify kind of acquisition, and you kind of leave, I'm not on the inside, so I can't, I'm just purely speculating, you know, just, just watching the the press clippings. I think they're really thinking about positioning that signify almost as a primary care complementary enablement kind of thing in the home. So I, I think you see the, the the large retailers that say go into primary care in their stores and then some set of enablement services, which not would only not only benefit their in-store presence, but could also benefit the out-of-store presence. This is probably a good transition, actually, to talk a little bit about what you're doing now. So you've you've done the retail clinic thing, done the payer thing. In in the long arc of your career, you were talking about you you went from delivering care services to payment models, and now we're back. I'm curious, like, why you chose. Well, well maybe you could tell a little bit about what Wellbe does to the people who are listening, and then why you chose this 
kind of modality of care as as what you want to work on in the next sort of phase? So I, I haven't said, but I am a geriatrician. So I started off in this place. And if you look at geriatrics, geriatrics is all fundamentally about the the care for the sickest patients, right? And you, I'm sure you all, you both have like aunts or uncles or grandparents. You can kind of picture it. You know, seven diseases, maybe demented, you know, maybe paralyzed, can't get into the, you know, doctor's office. And so that's why I went into medicine. I did not go into the medicine to treat the worried well. I didn't go into medicine to take care of the two of you. I went into, <laughs> I went into medicine to take care of the people who really needed it. And so that's kind of one. So for me, I just think that that's, that's kind of my life kind of orientation. Now I'm realizing you calling us healthy was not a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't yeah, want to exactly. see you. That's right. I don't want to see you. That's right. No, that's absolutely right. I don't. I don't. Go do your retail clinic or whatever it is. But, anyway. but um, I think that the second is it, it, just, it does come back to this issue of the 80-20. It's where's the opportunity. If you want to make a meaningful difference, you focus in on the 20. I mean, I, I have yet to be the health plan. You know, the health plan's contract with us in our model. And I'll explain a little more about my model. But I get to meet a health plan that says, hey, Jeff, we don't need something like Roby. They all need it. Because they're all contracting with ambulatory practices, and they're all trying to move them, their members in these value-based worlds. That leaves them with people who are sick and who can't get in to see the doctor's office. And that's where we come in. Basically, our model is the health plan finds these sick, very sick patients, very complicated. They assign them to us. We go at full risk for the member, and then we see them in their home. That's it. In a nutshell, we bring the care to them. Maybe the other thing for the clinicians in the audience, an important thing to understand, 95, 90, 95% of what a doctor does in his or her office can actually be done at home. But now in a full risk model, I can afford to do that. Well, in a fee-for-service model, I can't do that. I would have to probably, in order to afford my model, I probably have to do 10, 12 visits a day, which is like physically impossible. Versus now I'm doing maybe four to six visits a day, you know, and spending the time that the patients need to keep them healthy and out of the hospital. Yeah. I mean, one thing I'm uh, I'm curious to get your take on is it feels like there's, and maybe it's just because of the world, you know, Gil and I spend time in, but it feels like there's a lot of companies these days that say, hey, we want to take on risk for complex patients. And I kind of have this image of like, you know, I'm the Humana team and I'm just, I set up my office for the day and like in comes, you know, 20 different startups and they're all, they all want to take risk on like the same patients. And I, I'm curious, like from the, as you think about you, you obviously have been very successful in selling into payers, like you know, I'm sure longer term, there's there's clinical evidence that ultimately, you know, drives these decisions. But, you know, in the early days of a lot of these companies, there's not a ton to point to, right? And so how do payers kind of make these decisions? And how do you think about, like, the state of competition in the market today? They close their eyes. They have the dark board. And they <laughs> pick, pick a provider. You know, this is, I mean, we started up in the middle of COVID. So let's say July of 2020. So over two and a half years, we're already up to 50,000 members. So phenomenal growth. And I think the reason why is because we're prepared to put our money where the mouth is. So basically, when I go to the payer and say, we'll contract full risk, but we'll take 100% of the downside risk, that immediately separates, I don't, I don't want to say sexist. So instead of men from the boy, they'll say women from the girls, right? <laughs> it immediately separates women from the girls, right? I mean, it's like when you're prepared, because you have a lot of these people who want to take risk, but you really 
go into it. They want, you know, they, they don't want any downside. They want to do some gain share, this and that. When you tell a plan you're prepared to take 100% downside, that all of a sudden you get their attention. Because basically what you're doing is guaranteeing them an MLR target. Right. And then how do they think about like the sustainability of that? I mean, one thing that's that's interesting, you know, I think one company that, you know, has, has struggled in the public markets has been Babylon. And if I think about kind of what they did is I think they were willing to take on a lot of risk and without so much of a track record to show it. And I think at the time, the providers were like, great, <laughs> like Centene's like, cool, if you want to take on this risk and, and guarantee us our, our margin, fantastic. But obviously, you know, it can kind of blow up, right? I can't commonly on Babylon, but let's, I'll put my plan side hat on. If you're dealing with a, let's call it a young, immature company, then you basically put them on training wheels and you say, okay, let's, let's do a pilot. Let's do a proof of concept, do it for 500 patients or whatever, and then let's see. If you're dealing with, uh, let's call it, organizations that have been in for a while that could show you demonstrable outcomes and measurable outcomes, then you're prepared to grow faster with them. In my case now, you know, we're two and a half years on. We're showing great outcomes. And I can show it to them. I can measure it. And it gives them a little more confidence level to then say, okay, no training wheels. We'll just do a full risk contract with you and, and we'll give you thousands of them. Maybe maybe related a little bit more to like how you think about the care model here. So ChenMed, obviously somewhat similar-ish, right? Taking on upside-downside risk, similar-ish population. I'm curious like why you chose to do a more home-based model versus a clinic model, since you've obviously sat in both of those seats, but with similar patient populations and probably contract. I think it, this gets back to my passion. You're right. They are very similar, kind of sick, disadvantaged patient population. But their model, and I, by the way, I'm still on their board of directors, so I just said it. But their model is bring the patient into the, into the clinics, you know, and they have these buses that circulate and bring the clinics into the patient. I still always believe that there's this subset of patients where the right thing to do is bring the care to the patient. And so now I will say from an innovation standpoint, I do think once you get yourself out of the tyranny of the bricks and mortar in the office, you can do a lot of innovative things. So for example, one thing that I'm doing that Chad Med's not doing is we have a paramedic program where if someone calls us and says, I'm sick, I can get a paramedic in their home in 30 minutes. We can assess them and we can treat them right there. We can do IV antibiotics, IV fluids, the whole thing. Once I get out of the tyranny of the bricks and mortar, so in the bricks and mortar thing, they basically say, well, what I'm going to do is I'm just build a little urgent care center. Well, there's a limit to how many urgent care centers you can build. You know, they have, let's say, whatever, five clinics in Georgia or in Atlanta, right? Or they're going to build an urgent care center in all five clinics or whatever, you know, or one. So for me, once I'm out of that, I can actually really think of some innovative things where I can just base, basically be delivering mobile urgent care into a patient's home. I'm curious to get your take on this because, I mean, Jacob and I have obviously both either like been around or invested in tech-enabled services companies that have to hire clinicians in some capacity. And for a model like yours, first of all, I'm curious, like, what is the archetype of physician or clinician that you find who wants to join something like this? But also more than that, if if you want to have a clinician-friendly governance structure and they have maybe ownership over their schedule or et cetera, how do you actually like balance the tension of you have stuff you need to get done, like patients that they need to see to make your model work with they maybe are coming to you for more 
flexible schedules or ownership, etc. Like there must be a tension that exists between those two. Oh, so on the answer first question, the architect. I actually think that the archetype is clinicians who went into medicine to do the right thing, care for people. I think the physicians who went into medicine because they're very transactional and they just want to make money, they're going into cardiothoracic surgery, orthopedic surgery, and they're just like so. So I think that's kind of one, that's the archetype. Um, which surgeon hurt you? No, I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm just Which surgeon left me at the office? But I think in order to, I think this gets a little bit to the, to the, to the financial alignment. You know, I'm very clear in my organization, our bonuses and everything is basically, if we keep people healthy and out of the hospital, they get bonus better, right? So there's a little bit of a, hey, now all of a sudden we're aligned. You know, now all of a sudden it's okay. Let me understand this. We do better. I do better economically if I keep do the right thing and keep people healthy and out of the hospital. Versus, I do well because I'm seeing 50 patients a day, whatever the number is. And so I think that there's, I think it comes down to financial, and that's really what value-based medicine is trying to do. So trying to align the final outcomes with like physicians. And then there, to your point, Akil, there's these marginal issues around. I want to control my schedule and everything, but I see those as largely marginal. If everyone is rolling in the right direction and is kind of aligned financially, you'll kind of figure out the marginal issues of whether I'm working eight hours a day versus six hours a day, whatever it is. So. Yeah. I mean, given that you've you've been working on this stuff for, you know, 35, 40 years, I'm curious when, you know, if you think about when you were at Urban Medical Group or you were at CMS and you thought about, you know, in the 80s or 90s, you're like, well, in 2023, healthcare is going to look like, you know, however it looks and and kind of compare that with where we are now. I'm curious how you just reflect on like where where have we done well, where have we fallen short, kind of relative to to some of the stuff you thought at the time. Uh, I'm proud. I'll do the plus side, and then I'll do that. I am actually proud of of where Medicare Advantage has come. It really is. If you step back and look at all of the innovation and care models, and you know, it's all occurring in Medicare Advantage. I think I'm disappointed back to my early comments around there's not been that much progress in the commercial marketplace. And I think it is because of that structural issue. I had hoped for more progress in the commercial market. The commercial market's been talking about value-based for decades. And if you talk to employers, you know, they're struggling, you know. So I, I had hoped that we'd be further along. And I just come back to it's a structural issue around ASL versus fully insured. I, mean, I, I don't want oversimplify. Well, why do you think there's been like an employer revolt though? I'm always surprised. It seems like they got such the short end of the stick in the in the system. I feel like part of it though is that there hasn't been as crazy of a pressure on them, right? Like now this year for the first time, it's like we might be going into a recession for you know first time in a while. Wages are going up like crazy. Commercial sticker shock is going to set in as they see their premiums readjust, right? Like, there hasn't really been a ton of pressure for them to change either, right? I think that's fair. That's an interesting so You were at point. Cigna during, during the financial crisis, right? I mean, there must have been some. That's true. Some pressure so there. There was some. I, I just, I actually, uh, I'm going to apologize in advance but I actually think the broker community has something to do, the consultant community has something to do with this also. The consultant community, I think, has errantly basically said to the employers, your choice 
around plans should be around size and network and your network discounts. And that is not a total cost of care value proposition. And I think that the, so the consultants are leading the employers in that direction. The employers don't know any better. And so they just go with it. And I just think that the unit cost discount misses 50, 60% of the, of the puzzle. I'm, I was always fond of saying when I was at Cigna, okay, let me get this straight. You're fighting over a unit cost discount of 5%, right? But if I can avoid a hospitalization, I just achieved a 100% discount on that hospitalization. <laughs> and so I, I just think there's confusion out there. And I think the consultants aren't doing their employees a favor. The biggest discount is never going at all. That's right. <laughs> That's, That's exactly brain. right. That's <laughs> and I think that right. expectation of network size almost perpetuates itself, right? Because you're, you're at the point today where it feels like if I'm an employee and my employer's like, well, actually, we don't have Stanford or UCSF or Yale New Haven or pick your academic system. It seems so out of the ordinary and, and uh, something that you wouldn't even consider. And so it's interesting that it's just become so standard. So what's going to happen, and I'm sure you're reading, you know, all the hospital costs are going up, uh, wages are going up, etc. Two, three years from now, as contracts expire and they get renegotiated, the uh, commercial rates are going to go up astronomically. And they're going to be able to get them. And the reason why they're going to be able to get them is because everyone's got to be in the network. And if every provider's got to be in the network, the commercial payer has no leverage. What's the definition of a successful negotiation? Is the ability to get off out, out of the table and leave. The commercial payers can't do that because the employers expect everyone in the network. That's true. Until the brand value of like large academic medical systems goes down, everyone's going to want to go, which is not, you know, there's a certain irony to it, right? Because even within an academic medical center or a large hospital system, the distribution of quality is because they're so large now, there's like a high variance even within the name brand, right? So yeah, I mean, unfortunate, but it is, it's true. So anyway, in answer to question, is the positives, Medicare Advantage, and I think it's occurring in Medicaid also, so I'm really happy. It's odd that all the good stuff is happening in government, <laughs> and none of the good stuff is happening in the private sector and commercial. It's just really odd. But anyway. Yeah, super interesting. Well, we always like to end our uh, interviews with a quick fire round, where we'll ask you some uh, some questions and get kind of your quick thoughts. And so, you know, to kick it off, one thing we ask all our guests is, you know, we all go to the same healthcare conferences. We hear the same terms, you know, thrown around, uh, it seems like, year to year. So I'm curious of all the things that are discussed kind of in the health tech ecosystem, you know, what's one thing you think's overhyped and one thing you think's underhyped? Underhyped, this podcast. I'll do, I'll do two. Uh, <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Obviously, right. I'll do two overhyped, actually. AI machine learning and remote patient monitoring are two overhypes. Uh, I guess I'm not sure to explain. They're supposed to be quick, but uh, we, we, we'll nutshell, definitely, that's too juicy not to, to merit a little bit of an explanation. Yeah, of course. You can't just say that <laughs> yeah. and walk away. That's it's a crazy. good mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, <laughs> All right, AI machine learning. Okay. So I can identify this pattern or this high risk person. The fundamental question is what the heck am I going to do with that person? And the AI machine learning doesn't answer that in any sort of way. So, you know, some people call that the last mile problem. All right, so now I've identified this per- whatever this opportunity. Who's gonna Who's gonna take care of? Who's gonna do something with that information? And then remote patient monitoring. I I actually think remote patient monitoring has a role, but I think it's more an efficiency play when the doctor can't doesn't have time to be you know watching what's going on. But if I'm much better off actually having my clinicians 
in-person monitor because not only do they get that particular value, let's say it's a blood pressure, but they're also dealing with the patient as a whole and just looking at what the heck else is going on. So said another way, I just think minute by minute blood pressures, what does that really mean? I mean, I just, I don't know what it means at the end of the day. So, but, uh, so I think those are two overhyped. The underhyped, that's interesting. Nothing piques your interest? Come on. That's okay. I don't know. I think think it really comes down to what's underhyped is, is it really comes down to the provider. I mean, we kind of try to, it's really trying to get the provider to change and move into a value-based world. I mean, it's, it's not a technology, it's just, Sadly, my, my, my doctor used, my, a good friend of mine used to say, what's the most expensive device, medical device in the, in the country? The clinician. It turns out the most expensive medical device is the doctor's pen. Because <laughs> the doctor is controlling what gets ordered and the resources. So if you can control or you can get the doctor's pen on your side, that's the most, that's the device that you really need to, or the tech you need to work on. So underhyped, better pens. <laughs> better pens, yeah. That's, that's, that's the pens. synthesis that we have, Nikhil, on the podcast. That's my, take, that's yeah. my takeaway. That's right. Unbelievable listener. And then, you know, for, for our penultimate question, I guess, you've kind of had this magic wand already because you were the chief medical officer at CMS. But if we, <laughs> if we let you go back and, and, and you were the only person there and you could make any policy change to improve healthcare in the U.S., uh, what would you do? The only person that can answer this as a second magic yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know how I talk about the three structural things that occurred. One was risk adjustment. The second was the quality measurement bonuses. And the third was data, you know, ONC. I actually do think that if the federal government got more aggressive on interoperability and in exchange of data, I actually think they, we would be further along. The reality is the federal government is taking a little more of a posture that the market will exchange data. The reality is the market does not want to exchange data. The market is trying to compete on how much data I own and how much it is proprietary to me. And so the market's not going to get there. It's going to require federal intervention to actually get data exchangeable in a kind of free-flowing way. So I think that that's, that's probably my match for. Well, next three years, you're theoretically supposed to get your wish come true. Let's, let's yeah, see. Well, let's hope it's a strong one. Yeah. But no, this, is, this has been a fascinating conversation. I guess, you know, I'm sure our listeners will want to learn more. What's the, what's the best way for them to kind of learn more about you and your work at Wellbe? Oh, that's simple. Listen to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, listen, listen to it three, four times. Make sure you've got every section completely down. <laughs> No, I'm serious. All joking aside, I don't. We're not particularly good at promoting ourselves, but I mean, I guess what I'll do is we got a website, but maybe the first thing I'll do is put this podcast on the website. So. <laughs> Amazing. 